want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode Altitude. number 40. Yeah, okay, I got one. I'll tell you about election night in Afghanistan. So there I was in 2009 on a deployment in Bagram, uh, flying the F-15E, and election night, which is a significant event in the country, was, was coming up, and so the posture for that the uh, the army had reduced their patrols and, and wanted to eliminate the military presence around the election centers. I get put on a 12-hour night alert shift on election night because I'm flying too much. As, as expected, there's troops and contacts popping up everywhere. So we, we get launched, we go through, uh, I think, two, two or three troops and contacts is like the first one and bravo is the second so we're on like alpha alpha which is like 20 you know, 26 <laughs> alpha bravo alpha yeah. charlie oh my god it's going crazy so we're we reset and at this point like the aor is going crazy so there's probably 70 80 ticks that have opened all Jeez. in the span of like this like yeah. 12 hour window My guest today is Mike Benitez, call sign Paco, and that's a snippet from his There I Was story, which is exclusive for Patreon supporters. If you have any interest in supporting the podcast, you can swing over to patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast, and you can check out some additional content, get early access to episodes, and support the podcast. And as always, if you're not interested in doing that, I always ask if you're enjoying the content, just consider swinging over to iTunes and spend the 10 to 15 seconds and leave a rating or review that helps the podcast out. And I appreciate it. All right. With the admin knocked out, let's talk about my guest today, Mike Paco Benitez. He is a Wizzo by trade. That's a weapon system officer. However, he started his military career in the Marines as a door gunner in the CH 46 and CH 53. Some combat deployments from the Marines and then multiple combat deployments in the F-15E. And he even has an F-18 combat sortie in there just to mix things up. He has done fellowships at DARPA and Congress in Silicon Valley. I first saw him kind of pop up on social media with the fighter pilot crisis the Air Force was really going after back in the 2014 to 2016 timeframe. We talk about that today. I think Paco brings some good insight to what's happening inside the Air Force and the DOD for which he really has a passion about. And in fact, he has started a newsletter, which is called The Merge. You can go to themerge.co and sign up for it or view the archive there. 
but it's objective material that's given insight into national security interest. I had a buddy, Fiddy, who was actually the second guest on this podcast, introduced me to the Merge newsletter. If you're kind of tired of the fluff pieces that you see scrolling through on whatever news app you're using, I think Paco does a really good job of digging into actually the meat of whatever the issue is that he's happening to be tackling that week. So if you're interested in defense and national security related content, the merge.co is another source that you can gather some information from that I think you'll like if you're interested in this type of material. All right, that's enough about that. With that being said, let's get into the episode with Paco. Not this morning, I guess. Mm-mm. So just a little Viper reset. You know, turn it off, turn it back on. Turn it off, turn it on a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah, I was saying like the merge. What made you start the merge newsletter? Uh, well, I. That's a great question. So, if you go back a couple of years, uh, I, you know, I go through and I read a lot of uh, happenings. What's going on in industry? What's going on in the military? And it it got really really hard uh, to sort through all the chaff. And so by that, I mean, like the things that while interesting, you really can't do anything with that information in a way to either make yourself smarter or uh, to monetize it, quite honestly, from the industrial point of view. So things like, oh, a uniform change, like who cares? Uh, You know, hey, this commander got fired for doing something stupid. Who cares? Like, so, you know, deployments, rotations. So what I wanted to cover was that intersection of kind of defense technology trends and forecasting. And so you can see from the warfighters perspective where industry is leaning and where the future is kind of like leaning towards. And from the industry's perspective, the warfighter applications is some of the promising technology. So it's kind of right at the intersection between the two. And my, uh, the readership uh, base is, is pretty eclectic. It kind of spans from uh, think tanks to uh, industry. And that's uh, you know, th- your normal defense primes to a lot of tech startups to a lot of uh a lot of people in the air force uh honestly uh yeah. some senior uh so senior officials uh that I, I won't list uh who, who they are but there's a lot of senior officials that read it and then there's uh, a lot of people in capitol hill that read it as well so it's uh you know there's there's obviously some responsibility in in content there to right. not uh and, and i'm never disparaging about anything but just calling it like it is yeah so we're talking about the merge newsletter and that's the merge.co right uh, highly recommend people swing over there and check it out. Um, I had a buddy, F-35 guy who's down there at Eglin who introduced me to it. So I think by word of mouth, it's kind of growing. One of the things which I think a lot of people can kind of align with, especially nowadays with the news, there's so much noise out there and usually it's clickbaitish, or it's there to enact some kind of emotion when you really just want facts. So when I signed up for the newsletter, one, I didn't know at first that the archive exists on the website. So you can go back and read previous newsletters, but it's factual. And obviously it's defense focused, but you can actually get concrete data points that are put together very well. And you can walk away having learned something, which I really like and appreciate. And I know it takes a lot of time to do that. What's your normal flow? Like, how do you, I mean, how do you come up with this stuff? Are you just sitting there and you see something in Air Force Times, it's a fluff piece and actually go dig into the facts or is it just something you're interested in? Yeah, so a uh, great question. What what I actually did was I took kind of my normal habit patterns and kind of operationalized it. So I probably read 
an hour to an hour and a half a day of just different news sources and the things. So instead of just reading it and going, that's interesting and kind of filing it away in my nugget, uh, I decided to just start capturing some of those things, those headlines. And, and I release it every week and I do that on purpose because I do not want to get caught up in the news hype cycle, which is yeah. really easy to do when you go to something that's uh, more frequent. And so if I collect something on Monday that I think is pretty interesting, you know, by Friday, it might be, uh, you know, nonsense. And so I'm just not going to cover it. So I do that. And then I, I've, I built myself some processes to basically, uh, do it as a one man show. Yeah. I do, have it, a, I do have a good friend of mine who, who sanity checks my final draft to make yeah. sure, uh, <laughs> my grammar uh, is correct and things like that. Uh, and he, and he's a, he's a part-time contributor. So he, he helps out a little bit and it's, uh, I could, I couldn't do it all by myself. So I do. Uh, I do let on my friend quite a bit. Yeah. So obviously you're reading a lot every single day. How long does it take you to make a newsletter? Oh, longer than you think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, if I spend an hour a day reading and consuming info and then there's, uh, actually categorizing it and then building it into the format that you read, whether it's the trivia or uh, the, the zoom in section, I hear you read more and this is why it's important or uh, the kind of the long, the long format piece. So about 500 or less words on something that's kind of a deeper dive just from my perspective. So th that's probably the, the only really opinionated section is upfront, but it's, it's very objective based. Uh, so I try not to lean left or that's right on anything. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, I really appreciate. So I first saw you pop up your, I mean, your career. We're going to go through a bunch of stuff, but F-15, F-18, a Marine, door gunner. So you've done a bunch of stuff. Where I first saw your name kind of start popping up was a few years ago, 2015, 2014 timeframe, 2016. So Air Force is going through a fighter pilot retention problem. They created a Facebook group really to like kind of crush WAMs as word of mouth. So get stuff, real information out there, doing all these different initiatives to try and make quality life better, to try and keep and retain people. And I saw you posting and responding a lot on there with a lot of like good concrete data and facts, what's going on. At that time, you were up at the Pentagon or up on Capitol Hill working some of these initiatives. Can you kind of talk a little bit about fighter pilot retention? Is that still a problem? What's, yeah, what's going on? I know you can speak intelligently about it and I'm curious. Yeah, so back to the beginning, uh, I didn't even have a Facebook account actually when that, when that was going <laughs> on and a, uh, you know, a buddy, a couple of buddies of mine, I had three or four buddies that, that were, you know, were kind of in a group text. This is, you know, whatever it's five years ago now, probably something like that. And, uh, they're like, you know, they screenshot things going on and I was like, oh, that's not real. Like, oh, this is what's really happening. And they're like, how do you know all this? Like, Cause you know, you either I'm directly involved or I'm one person removed. It's like the, you know, the, the six separations of Kevin Bacon yeah. in DC. Like <laughs> if you want to get involved and get a pulse on what's going on, it's pretty easy to figure it out. And so at the time I was, uh, I was flight following that pretty closely. And so I could tell you the, the ins and outs of what's actually going on, reading between the lines, what they're not saying, why they're not saying it. And, uh, you know, there's some transparency that's there and there's some messaging that, that needs to take place. And so it's all, you know, it gets scoped by the time it comes out of the sausage factory. It's, uh, it's easy to misinterpret what's going on. So they were like, Hey, joint, joint, please just join this group. So that's how I got on, onto that Facebook group. I, like I said, I had to create an account uh, to get on <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> so not a, uh, not really big into social media uh, back then, obviously. And then uh, while I was in the Pentagon, so I, I worked, uh, worked a few different jobs. Uh, I worked for um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs for Legislative Affairs for about six months. Okay. And I went across the, the, 
street over to uh, Congress. So I worked for a senator for a year in his office, uh, wearing a, a ditch the flight suit for a three-piece suit. <laughs> and then uh, came back to the Pentagon to work for the Secretary of the Air Force as the uh, Chief of Fighter Programs for Legislative Affairs. So fighters, munitions, that kind of stuff, back to the Hill. And in that intersection uh, at the time, we have a we have a personnelist that was also kind of a key representative for the secretary to the Hill. And there was a there was an obvious disconnect of the the rated officer uh, problems and the messaging because the way that it was kind of diluted and distilled down through the the personnel point of view and not the the person. And so I tried. I joined a couple of internal working groups for the uh, Air Force. Uh, Aircrew Crisis Task Force at the time, right. and I became kind of the uh, the outside individual that was kind of throwing spears and, and, th- and helping everyone think more critically about, you know, here's here are some options that we can do, um, here's how we can message it, and it, you know, we we had a few wins, but I'll tell you, the uh, the bureaucracy kind of uh, crushed most of the efforts. Uh, we can talk a little bit about that if you want. Um, Get them truth truth and lending, so I'm not hiding yeah. anything. That's what I mean. I feel like there are a lot of really good and motivated people out there that have really good intentions. And I saw it with a couple of commanders who I thought were phenomenal leaders, but it's like, they could only really pick their one battle to like pour their energy into because they're getting attacked from all sides and there's only so much you can do. But the, I mean, it does come down to like, there's so much red tape and bureaucracy. It seems like that to get something that should be very simple to do, you know, you have to send a memo through 15 different people, right? Which it should be VFR direct to you to make the decision, but it's got to follow this process. And it just seems like things are stagnant and just don't happen. And it drags out for months, but typically years, depending on how complicated or what the ask is and what money is involved. So, I mean, why, I mean, why is it that way? Why can't the red tape be broken down? I know standard answer probably is it depends, but um, yeah, what, what is it? Yeah. So I think, uh, human nature, if you go back over history, uh, for the first step of solving a problem throughout the, at least the United States history is to establish an organization. And so <laughs> when you, when you do that, I mean, think of every, every branch of government that exists, it exists out of a crisis, whether it's the CIA, the De- department of defense, the NGA, uh, the NSA, department of Homeland security, nine eleven. So never in a crisis have we go, you know what, let's, let's close these organizations and streamline some things and, and cut some bureaucracy. It doesn't happen. Yeah. It doesn't happen. Yeah. They just find, they establish another organization and find a way to try to connect it uh, to everything else that already exists. And so over time you have layers upon layers upon layers of band-aids. Uh, and it's really hard to cut through all those layers of uh, crap to, to get some things done. And I will tell you, you know, we had, there was a time where we, the chief, uh, he had asked us, you know, Hey, give me, give me your, uh, give me your score sheet. I want to see what's going on here. And so we had had internally had probably, uh, over 50, probably close to 60 different initiatives that we had like come up with. We red teamed it. Like these are all great ideas. And of those 50 to 60, we had three, three that had been implemented. Is this the word document that you guys were sending out that had like a stoplight chart of like where the progress was and where it's sitting? Is that what I'm thinking of? Uh, yeah, that was part of it. And uh, honestly, you know, it goes back to critical thinking, you know, as, uh, as amazing that fighter pilots think they are, uh, <laughs> there, there is a, there is a, a level of critical thinking that very, very, very few people 
can uh, can elevate themselves to to fully understand the problem. And so because of that, a lot of the initiatives weren't really addressing the root causes of problems. They were just more band-aids. And, you know, at the at the person that's dealing with the pain, so out in the cockpits on the flight line and in the squadrons, you know, they can see right through that. And that's that disconnect where you start losing the narrative, that you start losing your own team is because if you're if you're out of touch with what's what's really going on, then you're not going to be able to understand the real problem. And therefore, whatever solutions you do propose, while they might look great in a headline and they might look well in a, you know, a congressional hearing, uh, they're not ever going to work. So we yeah. had uh, we had a few initiatives, and here's the other part of it: is that it, it's very easy to blame Congress. But of the of most of the initiatives that we had come up with, uh, we already had all of the authorities and law to do it. So one of the things that we come we came up with again, like kind of getting out there critically thinking, is you know, the Air Force, and, and you know this from pilot training: you graduate pilot training and you get a ten year service commitment. It, the law doesn't say that; that is an Air Force policy. Yeah. The, the law says eight years. And so the Navy, if you're in the Navy, you have an eight-year contract. And depending on what platforms you fly, they're a little bit less. But the Air Force is a blanket 10-year uh, policy. Like, we could change that. We, and so when you listen to, you know, the dudes in the, uh, in the fighter squadrons, and they're like, well, I, I just want, I want more control of my life. And you go, well, we can give you control of your life back. We can cut this to two years. We have the authorities to do this. And... The interesting disconnect becomes when you start what ifing it. You go, what if everyone gets out? Well, well, that's still the the Air Force's fault. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> change the situation, right? Right. It's like that's again, we're there's you know big uh, big problems require big solutions, and uh, it's and they're you know multi step, multi phased uh, uh, approach, and it was very linear of how like you know this problem has this solution, this problem has this solution. Well, you know, one problem usually has four or five solutions that all have to be integrated and applied uh, in order to work. And, and a lot of that got lost in just the, the staffing of stuff between, you know, if I've got initiative A, it has to go through these five different sequences to get to the right person. And initiative B has to go through these other five instances and organizations. And then it gets, the message gets lost along the way of like, what is the, what is the actual strategy to fix this problem? And, you know, one of the big heartburns that a lot of us had internally is the, the chief of staff had declared it a crisis. Okay, great. What are the conditions to resolve the crisis? Is there a certain manning level, a certain retention level? What are the goals and metrics? Like nothing. And so eventually they just stopped calling it a crisis. But That's it doesn't I, mean it went away. Yeah, I, I feel like it just kind of fizzled. And granted, I was entering a transition out of active duty in the reserves and I'm not flying, I'm doing recruiting. So like I'm now further removed from the problem. I still kind of like follow it to a certain degree and then through the bro network. But I really don't feel like anything has really changed. Now there are, I mean, some of those initiatives did happen, right? But COVID is a variable that got injected that probably affected retention to a certain degree. But I feel like we're on the back side of that. And those same problems are going to start to manifest or they're going to start showing again. I mean, do you think there was success out of that? Do you think it was a Band-Aid? Where are we? Well, I'd say success is measured in the long term, not the short term. And so it has to transcend the tenure of anyone uh, who's instituting change, right? So you can't measure that. Now, that being said, it's been a few years. So some of the things that were implemented, such as bringing in help to actually uh, you know, restaff the squadrons and some of the administrative stuff, so we can stop working 12 to 14 hour days. Yep. Um, 
and then bringing in uh, people to do uh, like neck and back, um, you know, chiropractor massage. And I don't think people understand like uh, the, the toll that that takes on your body. Right. Uh, so that was uh, optimizing the human performance of the weapon system, I believe was the acronym. Uh, so we brought that in and that was, you know, morale goes through the roof. We actually have people who care about uh, treating our uh, pilots as a weapon system, which is the, which is what uh, SOCOM uses. So for their operators, if they treat their people like a weapon system, there is, there are different phases, there's phase maintenance. And so uh, for a long time, we were, <laughs> you know, we weren't really treated as people. Uh, and so this was a great way forward, uh, very small cost, huge return on investment. Um, so that was great. And I tell you that to say the Air Force just killed that program. So, Oh, did they really? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it'll probably, it, it, it's, it's on the chopping block due to budget cuts. And so people look at things like that and they go, oh, these guys are pampered. We're going to cut that program. I'm like, well, get ready for the second order effects. So not only are you going to uh, lose people, you're going to break faith with an entire culture and cadre of warfighters that, you know, really could vote for with their feet and they, they are, and they have. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned that because the two things that I have seen that have garnered a lot of positive reaction one, and I did see it before I got out was the civilian like schedulers, UDMs that rolled into the squadron to alleviate some of those admin tasks. And that was huge, especially scheduling. I mean, that, that in itself is just a massive time suck. The next piece was everyone was talking about the human performance and having, you know, physical therapists, massage therapists in the squadrons, helping them feel better, be better, and perform better. So knowing those are gone, the second and third order effects of that, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. The, the piece I saw, which I was surprised, was the number of first assignment guys who would come up and talk to me, especially when they knew I was getting out and they would express their desire to get out. And this is, you know, obviously it's one example, right? Um, it doesn't mean it's spread across the Air Force, but it's interesting because granted I was a FAPE, so I wanted to go and I wanted to get to that first assignment and then go to the F-16, but I still didn't even think about separating and getting out. I was planning on staying in 20 years. And it wasn't until my like last two, two and a half years of my commitment that I really thought about transitioning out. And that was the same, I can say, for my most of my peers. I think we were all kind of very similar-minded like that. There might have been one or two who, hey, they knew they were going to do their 10-year commitment and separate. But everyone else was kind of willing to hang around and you know, going to take the bonus. But the fact that that's starting to change and guys who are in their first assignment are already thinking about their exit has me a little worried. Granted, it's not my problem to solve, really, but it is, it's an interesting... Um, dynamic and then with the transition getting rid of the pension i wonder about the second and third order effects of that like if that carrot is a carrot actually hanging out in front of people getting them to stay for another eight years or so what yeah, are your thoughts a, yeah so man a couple of things to pull apart there so uh so the bonus um that is uh you know that's something that was you know created in the in the 90s based on uh, airlines hiring and forced drawdowns but when you go back and you look at the it's just basic math. So if you say there's a hundred percent of the people have a choice to make and, and you look at the air force model, um, of what we depend on, we depend on the, the, the way our entire system is set up is that two thirds of the people stay. 
And so 65% is always our retention goal for rated, uh, rated. It's plus or minus a little bit, but it's about 65%. Now, when you go back and you, and these are guys with 10 year commitments, by the way, that are making a 65% after their 10 year commitment stay the rest of the time at their, um, so we retain them or the Air Force retains them. Historically, uh, the number of officers that actually serve a 20 year career is like 40% or less. So you're looking at two standard deviations above yeah. normal retention. And that's the minimum to sustain the force. And so it, it doesn't take a you know, mathematician to figure out like that's, that's dumb. Uh, there's yep. gotta be a better way. And so, <laughs> it, you know, why, why do people get out? And you know, there's, there's a hundred different reasons, right? Um, yeah. But if you take that, that model and you break it into thirds, there's a third of the people that are never gonna leave, no matter how bad it gets. For a variety of reasons. Right. There's a third of the people that are never going to stay, no matter how good it gets. And so when it comes down to like the fight for retention is over the middle third. It's the guys that are like, I'm not really sure like this or that. And, you know, they're weighing their options. And that is where the, that is where you have to win the battle. So if you take that and uh, you apply it to, uh, what was the other, I've already lost track of what we were talking about before that. There was two parts of this. So I should write it, it down. Well, yeah, no, I, I hit you with a bunch there. Cause talking through it, the, like, I guess, where are we at? And I will ask, add this additional piece of info is when they did the, the road show going around talking, there's a group of maybe 20 of us, you know, three fighter squadron at Shaw. They did multiple meetings throughout the day. They said, every one of you who are in the 06, 07, 08 year group, you'll be in 06. Like if you can fog a mirror, right? Because yep. we don't have enough of you. So like, are we winning this battle? Are we not winning this battle? What is it going to look like? Yeah, I'd say number one, that is that I remember when that was going on. That what a what a terrible value proposition, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, that's that should not be the talking point. This is uh, not selling me. Yeah, again, it goes back to like understanding the problem. And so, if, one of the problems is they treated you know just inside the rated officers uh, pool, you have different types of rated officers. So you have got a fighter pilot, mobility pilot. Everyone kind of globbed onto the fighter pilot problem because th there was a lot of them uh, and a lot of them were getting out. And so if we could focus energy on that one thing, it'd be great. The problem is they stopped there. And so if you break down the fighter pilot community within the Air Force and you look, there are certain dynamics in each fleet that they have, and those weren't individually addressed. So if you're, uh, you know, the worst retention, and it's been a few years since I've looked at it, but the worst retention across the board for fighter pilots was uh, the F-15C community. It was like 15% retention. And you go, oh my God. <laughs> so, so when you break out the numbers, uh, you go, well, that's terrible. Like, well, why is it terrible? Like, well, because the way that the Air Force um, did the TFI integration of the fleet and the drawdown of the C model, there's only two active duty assignments that you can go to. One is in Japan and one is in the UK. And so if you want to be stateside and have a family and everything, like your only choice is to go to the guard reserves or go do something else or transition to another aircraft. And so the, the retention in that community was, is horrendous. And so that is one example, but every, you know, the F-35 is going to have the same problem on the active duty side. When you look at the basing and where they're going to be at, um, it, it's, it's the enterprise look at the problem when you make basing decisions and things like that, um, sometimes they're not uh, factored in. So a uh, caveman's view from my perspective, as we look at this, again, there's, there's a lot of variables that go into it. 
it seems like the, now the push for the fix is to produce a lot of pilots. Yep. So in order to produce a lot of pilots, there are a lot of changes that are going on and a lot of different iterations of pilot training that are happening, trying to pump people through the pipeline, or at least that is the perception from a guy like on my end is you see kind of the surface level view of what they're doing. What do you know about kind of like this pilot training next or what the efforts and initiatives are to get more bodies through the pipeline to fill cockpits? Uh, great question. So it's, uh, I'll, I'll take both sides of the question. So change needs to happen. That's the first thing. I, I don't think anyone, very few people would agree that, hey, what we're doing, that it was the model that we've been using from up until about, uh, call it 2015 or so, was the same model that was invented in 1940. The exact right. same model. You go, well, a lot of things have changed in the world. Is there a better way to do this? And the answer is yes. What is the better way is where the debate comes in. And so, you know, one of the talking points used to be when the, when the, the talking point was retention is, you know, how do I, you know, how do I build a, a 10 year experienced fighter pilot? Like it takes 10 years. Right. It's so <laughs> strange. If you can accelerate the experience, uh, that's where a lot of these initiatives came in. So I have a more immersive environment. I can pair several students to one instructor so I can, you know, experience in mass instead of one-on-one -on -one instruction and can I automate some things? Um, and so that's where a lot of these things to accelerate that experiential learning come in. Now there have been, there have been some wins, uh, there have been some losses and some, some missteps, but you know, I don't think if you, if you never try, like you're never gonna, you're never gonna get anything out of it. Right. So, yep. you know, you don't, you know, in baseball, you don't steal bases by keeping your foot on first base, right? You, you, you assess the situation, you get as much elite as you can. Sometimes you get, you know, you have to dive back to first. And then other times you have the right situation to make the right jump. And, and even then you're not always going to get, make it to second base, but yeah. if you got to steal bases, you got to take your foot off the bag. <laughs> Very true. Well, and this, I had a buddy who is an instructor out at Luke and when UPT next first started, it was in the test phase up at Austin, he went out and visited, saw their Sims. He was teaching in the seed course and thought, you know, at first very, where everyone's very skeptical of this, right. And, yep. and especially the messaging, the way that was going out and play the telephone game, you're not hitting the I believe button. He went out, saw it and ended up pursuing to get those simulators for the seed course out of sim because he saw just the, the immersive experience you could put students through and what they could gain out of it. And I would agree with you. That's kind of the pieces I, I have not been and seeing UPT next or UPT next 2.5. So I still like skeptical, but I firmly believe like we have technology we can leverage. And now as a FAPE, you know, if, if you were a student coming through and you needed extra work on instrument landings and the simulator is open, we couldn't go over there and do an extra simulator. You know, so the simulator sat empty because it would be a syllabus deviation, which went all the way up to the two star you know, and obviously it's going through all the layers of why this happened. You're like, that's silly. Like we have this technology, we have this capability. Why wouldn't we spend the time to try and make you a little bit better? Because maybe this is the thing you struggle on, but formation, you're killing it. Um, so those type things need to be changed and obviously leveraging the technology that is now available to us to make life less painful and, you know, enhance the learning experience. That's what a do good you point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you know, I'd say... Uh, let me think about this for a second. I think uh, 
so first of all, truth and learning, I have not been the UPT 2.5. I've not been, uh, but I know enough about it to see what's going on. One of the things about five years ago when they were trying to, you know, it's just like your friend is like, I don't, I don't know about this thing. Until you see it, you go, oh, it's not, it's not that it's the bright, shiny object that's going to solve world hunger, but you can right. see the potential. And one of the best things that we ever did was we took one of the, the early um, prototypes for UPT Next, the, the console, and we shipped it to the Pentagon. And I, I think most people really, uh, know this story. So we shipped it to the Pentagon, and uh, it was, there was an AETC liaison who works in the Pentagon, and they have an office okay. in the basement. And so they stuffed this thing in their office, and they kind of went out over the bro net, like, hey, guys, like, we have this here. Like, come check it out. So I went down and, and, and you know, played with it enough, and I'm like, okay, like, here's what I'm going to do. Every time I see someone that says something bad, I'm going to bring them down here and put them in the sim. And sure enough, we had the amount of people we cycled through that thing in the Pentagon, uh, the people like, I don't, I don't buy into this. And we had you know, everything up to like three or four star generals that were like, show, show me this thing. I don't believe it. <laughs> and it's funny, like I've probably brought, I don't know, at least 50 people down and put them through that uh, in my friend's office that's taken up all the space. And uh, it's funny because I'm like, all right, here's what's going to happen. Like you're going to put it on. Like you're going to have, you're going to say, you know, two, two words are going to come out of your mouth. It's going to be whoa and whoa. And the first <laughs> time they, they like you sit down and um, actually three woes. So the first one is like, here, here's this thing, like put the, put the headset on. And then they put the headset on, they start looking around and they go, whoa, because they're immersed <laughs> in this environment and they're, and it's an airborne, it's not freeze, it's an airborne aircraft. And they ask them like, what, what airplane do you want to fly? Like, oh, I don't know. Like, we'll, we'll pick one. We like, we have a menu of like 50 airplanes and you click a button and the whole cockpit changes in, in virtual reality. And like, oh, I want to fly a, whatever, a P-38. Okay, boop, P-38. And they go, whoa. Like, all right, I'm going to take you off freeze. Like, here's your, uh, you know, here, here are your controls and this and that. And then they go, well, well, what are these controls? Like, oh, forgot to tell you, everything that you're seeing from the computer to the displays to the, the, the stick, the throttle, we bought it all off of Amazon. And they go, whoa. And then yeah. they go, ready? They go play. And as soon as the, the, the simulation starts, that's the third woe. They go, whoa, this is crazy. And you see them do like aileron rolls and, you know, they'll fly around the, uh, you know, Brook Brooklyn bridge and cause you can put them anywhere in the world too. And so even though it had you know, obvious shortcomings, you can see the, the, the effect of being immersed in that kind of environment. Now, obviously there's a lot of way to, to, to go when you get to, um, HOTAS and, and things like that. And, when you get to like reconfigurable cockpits, you know, that's where it's going to be really interesting. Like you get to like T7 where yeah. you can, you know, dial up a, a cockpit configuration and uh, eventually um, it'll be a, um, I forget the actual term, but you basically push a button and it changes the way the aircraft flies. And so you can make it fly like an F-22 or make it fly like an F-16 or make it fly like a, you know, B-1. And so, you know, those types of things are ways to, to automate um, and, and accelerate the, the experiential process that is learning. Um, yeah, do you see, uh, you were, you were talking about landing, you know, back in the UPT, uh, type days, did you see the, the article, uh, one of the links I put in the merge from last week is about the H60 pilot. Did no, you, I didn't. Did, yeah, no. So there was a, there was an H60 pilot. He was a lieutenant actually, and, or he was a warrant officer, one of those. And okay. he, he had, uh, come up with this idea about, uh, I wonder if I can just put a camera in my cockpit that will just look at all the gauges. And he basically wrote a, uh, a script 
that would scrape the data off the gauges and digitize it. And then he built basically like, here's what the optimal like landing profile glide slope looks. So, uh, and then he basically folded that over onto itself. And now he has an automated instructor that debriefs him when he flies, it can go, Hey, your, your approach was too steep or your approach was too shallow. Now you take that. So you have a lifelong now data points of collection of like, historically I come in, you know, steep or shallow and, and it can debrief you automatically. And that's just one guy with an idea and a camera was right. able to do that. There's, that's not a funded program. It was just a guy who had an interest in, you know, how, how can I do this better? Uh, and that's just a guy sitting next to him giving him a debrief, but there's actual yeah. data there, collect the data and debrief it. Yeah. It's objective. It's not subjective and yep. feel and based on someone else's experience or vice versa. That's interesting. I think that's, what's going to change, but, and it's a great analogy you have, like at some point, you know, you got to try to steal second base. Maybe you die back to first, maybe you make it, maybe you don't, but trying these things. So do you think the environment is still there? and supportive where these ideas, if you come up with it and you flush it out a little bit that the air force is willing to try or put energy behind it, or is it, have we kind of, we've left that phase and now we're down the road of just trying to push people through. Yeah, that's a great question. So when you think of like the startup methodology, so imagine that that was a startup company. And so the two things that they're gonna want out of that startup is feedback from the customer so I've delivered a product, how is it going? And so I can iterate, so build, measure, learn, repeat. Um, and the other part is being able to pivot when it doesn't work. And so uh, as a military, we're generally not good at pivoting. We're really <laughs> good at canceling or just yeah. slugging it through and go, this is the way, like it'll be like this forever. So really bad at pivoting and we're not really good, ironically, we're not really good at feedback. And so one of the, when I worked in the Pentagon, that was kind of the running joke of like, look, it's an Air Force who like builds warfighters that has a, a credence of there's no rank in a debrief and we debrief everything so we can get smarter and we can all learn. No one debriefs any decisions or anything in the Pentagon. It's on to the next <laughs> crisis. It's, it's, it's uh, the, the dichotomy of, the, of you know, what you say and what you do at different levels of the bureaucracy is really, really fascinating. And so... As we deliver this product to different fleets, whether it's mobility, fighters, they all have things they have not gotten, right? And so the, the issue is providing that honest debrief of like, these are the disconnects. This guy is showing up and does not have airmanship, but he understands, you know, how an airplane flies. He understands the instruments. He does not have airmanship. And, you know, airmanship's kind of a, a squishy term, as you, as right. you know, like, what is, yeah. what does that mean? Just like situa a situational awareness, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how much uh, SA do you have? Well, 10 <laughs> until it's zero. <laughs> right. And you go, I actually have no, I have no idea what's going on. So it's very binary. Airmanship's yeah. a little bit of the same way. Uh, but being able to provide uh, that feedback, number one, and number two, a place to, to track trends. So long-term trends, not just, hey, this guy went to the, you know, the, the basic course and learned to fly F-16. But, you know, hey, five years later, you know, how, how did we do with this guy? Like what, we cut out, you know, 50% of his, his real-time flying as a undergrad, you know, five years later, is he, is he on his like four ship flight lead, um, you know, upgrade timeline, is he on his, you know, IP? And then individually, if he's not doing well, it doesn't really reflect on the person. It kind of reflects on the process. And so that, right. that's another part that we are very quickly to, you know, say, oh, that guy's not good. 
uh, he's, he's struggling. Uh, we need, we need to cut him, but it, it might not be his fault. So there, there's definitely going to be some, uh, some victims of the process. Uh, just like, you know, 90% of startups fail. I think you're going to, we're going to be putting out some products, uh, to the field that, that have some disconnects. Uh, and fi- so, you know, again, truth in the lending, do you want that guy in a frontline fighter squadron that's going to be going somewhere night one right away? Probably not. So there, there's, there's other follow on steps I think that have to happen with, with immersion. If you, you put a guy through an accelerated, you know, UPT, uh, program, and then you put them in a traditional fighter squadron that does everything the same way it's done the past 40 years, you know, that's not going to work either. And so having a, a lifelong learning that is adaptive and evolves with that, you know, that kind of model, uh, UPT is, is part of it, but it's not the whole thing. Which I feel like that's not all flushed out because it's impossible. Like we're, we're short on manning, we're short on resources. So when you take someone who's been through one of these unique programs and they're getting pumped right into a normal fighter squadron, the syllabus, the training is at that level is not geared towards it. And I covered a mishap from um, Shaw back in 2020. So, I mean, the apples and oranges here to a certain extent, but Mezzer, you know, he had never been to the tanker. And, you know, that was part of one of these initiatives, I think to, you know, you know, hey, we can waive this or we cut it out of the syllabus in the B course and the calf squadron can handle it. And I had my buddy who is the chief OGV when, you know, they started seeing these guys flow into Shaw who had never been to the tanker and they're smart fighter pilots and they're figuring out solutions to do it. And that's just, I think one kind of glaring, you know, example that is easily recognizable. Like, ah, he has not been to the tanker or has not done sat or whatever it might be that you can easily see. But when you get into the nuances of the training and the airmanship and that squishiness, you might, yeah, like you blame the person for the lack of performance, or maybe based upon their training, their training is different than what someone else went through. You know, how do you manage that? And I say all that because you have experience on Capitol Hill. Again, my perspective is we don't think long-term, you know, we're operating two to five years out, best case scenario, or do we have a continuing resolution so we can keep the government open? And then when we talk about doing these programs that really, if we're changing UPT and we need a 10-year look, we need to track that. How do these programs, how are they going to be successful if we need the ability to track for 10 years or plan for 10 years? They're not. <laughs> it's, you know, one of, the, one of the interesting things about that dynamic is that, you know, in the the way that the phase-based process works is, you know, you complete this phase, congratulations, you know, here's your, here's your certificate, here's your orders, here's the keys to the car, and you go to the next place. Then you go through another phase at the, at the end of that, congratulations, you know, here's your certificate, handshake, go off to the next one. When people make decisions, you're, you're injecting some uncertainty. And so risk, you know, you look at consequence and, um, uh, consequence and frequency of occurrence. So that uncertainty, the person who makes those decisions is accepting no risk. They're passing the risk on to the next phase. Yeah. And that is something that's not very well understood about when people make decisions, they're, they may be taking risk, but they're not assuming the risk. They're passing it off to someone else. And so if you're at the end of that pipeline and you're a, a, a like, combat air force fighter squadron commander and a guy shows up you probably have a right to know where has all the risk been taken 
to the point to get this guy to show up on my doorstep. You know, oh, we didn't do this. We didn't do that. Okay, well, and really then the other part of that is it should be up to the person who's getting that product to go, I do not accept the risk. And that doesn't happen. And so you, the guy shows up, that's your guy, figure it out. You know, right. it's, and that's kind of the military, uh, you don't build your team, which makes us kind of unique as from a leadership philosophy. You know, if you could, you could go out and, and, you know, recruit, rec recruit and build your own fighter squad. You could be the best fighter squad in the world. You find all the right, right. people with the right complementing abilities, but we don't, you, you build the team with what you have. And so if that's the, if that's the thing that a squadron commander is going to have, like you build a team with what you have, then you have to give the squadron commander the tools, the resources, the authorities, and because he's accountable, he is accountable for the mission. And so when you give a guy that's accountable for the mission without the resources or authorities to do it, um, that's kind of when the military mission fails. And it, there's, a, there's a long uh, prestigious track record of failure that's because of that. And that's not just pilot training, that's in general, everything. Yeah, I, we could talk about that uh, probably forever uh, yeah. in, in, in great detail. And that's what I think it's a good per, good perspective, a good point, and I think something to highlight, right? That in that that cap fighter squadron commander, he's assuming the risk. And this, yeah, it's just my perspective. But yeah, they can't say no, right? As you said, they don't get to pick their team and it's handed down. And typically they have their, I mean, they had their marching orders, right? And if they want to get promoted, they're going to go out there and do their best, but they're juggling a lot of things from meeting everything on their doc statement and making sure that they have the letter of X's and the, and the capabilities and the qualities of people that need to go out there and do the missions on that doc statement. It's a lot. And there's just, there's a, there's a lot of challenges out there. The one last piece I kind of like to talk about, because we've spent a lot of time talking about air force. I want to talk about your career, but I think you have a lot of insight. And again, this is something I encourage people to go out to the merge. Co. You can sign up for the newsletter because Paco has a lot of good info. He's very smart and he puts it in gooder words than me. So uh, <laughs> go to the, the, the merge.co and check that out. But where do you think we're going to be in a few years, Air Force? And again, I lean on the fighter squadron because this is where I have the most knowledge. But you know, my year group in the F-16 was pretty slim. I think it was like 15 to 20 guys. And then of the of that, there are a couple that are now commanders, and those are the couple that stayed in. Most guys got out, transitioned to the Guard or Reserve, or just completely separated. And I go back to that meeting where they said, hey, if you, if you can breathe and fog a mirror, you'll be in 06. But there were not enough of us, you know, in 2014 to fill all the upcoming 05 billet, the commander billets. And then, obviously, based on attrition rates, there weren't going to be enough to even fill all the 06 billets down the road. How do you think that's going to impact the Air Force? Is that something that's... Has that problem been solved or where are we going? Uh, I, I definitely, uh, you know, I'm, I live in operational tests these days. So, uh, but, uh, I do have a lot of friends that are living that in leadership positions and fighter squadrons right now. Uh, and I've got other friends that are in mobility, uh, airlift tanker, et cetera. And you know, the trend is the average age of a, a fighter squadron is getting younger and younger. Now you can correlate age to an extent to experience based on what is the average age when someone starts pilot training. And you can see that while the, they still have a 10 year commitment, the number of people that are staying beyond that, um, in the squadrons are going down and your second, uh, you know, the second order, uh, uh, problem with that is that when you keep someone in a squadron, so say we ha say you're in your F 16 community, there's a, there's a lot of attrition. And so we have to keep 
the guys who want to stay in, we're going to keep them in the squadron flying, which is, you know, that's great. You have, you, you have to do what you have to do, but the air force as an institution, uh, will punish that individual. And yeah. so they don't, they don't look like a normal, uh, air force officer career progression because the needs of the air force said that they have to stay and fly or they can't go to school or they can't do a staff tour, even if they wanted to. And a lot of people, uh, you know, you know, poo poo the staff tours and stuff, but that's where you get <laughs> perspectives and insights and you get to, to apply some tools that you've picked up and you, and you get to stretch in a different way. And so a lot of people aren't getting those experiences to bring back and to, and bring those perspectives back. And so, you know, I've seen some fighter squadrons that have, you know, because they, like no one in the squadron has ever been to a staff tour to include the commander. And they, they just do not have a perspective uh, that's bigger than, you know, what's going on in the flying schedule. And I think the perspective is really, really important because it allows you to elevate your own narrative and go, what's really going on here? You know, if I, you know, I fly that third go this, this day, like what's the cost benefit? Is it in the big scheme of things, does it matter? No, it just, it makes this one slide turn green at the end of the month, but is right. it really per, like building combat capability? And it, you apply that same kind of critical thinking to like, if you're a, if you're in the a basic course squadron commander and you're getting, you know, product, um, from UPT, we'll just say, uh, all hypothetical. And you're saying, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I do not accept this. And you start washing out people because they do not meet the standard. And it's the standard that's been given to you because the squadron commanders don't even own the syllabus. The MagCom owns the syllabus. You're in charge of executing. And so if it doesn't meet the standard, you get, doesn't meet the standard. And when you get to that point and your leadership says, no, you can't fail them. You have to pass them because we need pilots. You know, at the end of the day, is that something worth getting fired over as a commander? You know, my, I have a, a good friend and a former uh, boss of mine, you know, he, he always called it the Air Force Times uh, sanity check. You know, if this is the front page of the Air Force Times that I got fired over this, am I happy with that? And if the answer is like, yep, all right. But if it's, you get fired over this and it's not something you'd be proud of, like, nope. So there is a point of, uh, of being a martyr for the greater good. Um, but obviously that's, that's, that's a little self-sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> well, it'd be interesting to see, yeah, again, just kind of watching it. I think the problems, there's always problems, right? There's just been a lot of talk about this. And for my generation, your generation, this has been a big focal point of it. And I think we're going to see new problems pop up over the next five to 10 years, right? That rear their ugly head. Hopefully there's smart people that are still in that can solve them. But I do think it is, it's different. We need to leverage technology. We need to embrace some positive change, but again, without sacrificing the quality of the product that we're, we're putting out. And I know there's some trial and error and there's going to be some ships that sink and some that just sail away. It's going to be great, but it'll be interesting to see how all of this plays out because you know, from the ground level, it's usually it's, there's not a lot of positive, you know, looks at this and say, Hey, we're, we're winning this. This is, this is what we need to be doing right now. Yeah. When I was, uh, when I was flying in a, in an operational fighter squadron, uh, that, that used to be my, my one, I had a, a couple of buddies of mine that were a fellow uh, patches and, uh, say, Hey, we're, where's the good news today? Like, find, I have not found a piece <laughs> of good news today. So it was always my goal to find one piece of good news. And, uh, more times than not, I couldn't find any at the end yeah. of the day, which is, which is not good when you're working you know, a 12 or 14 hour day and you have nothing, nothing good came out of it that you know, it's just, you're, you're in the grind. 
and you're hoping yeah. that you know it all work out in the end you're hoping someone else has a bigger picture that's that's you know connecting it all together and uh sometimes there is and uh sometimes you're not yeah sometimes we're better lucky than good but yeah a good piece <laughs> of news right which I, i'll find interesting we kind of transition here Did you, have you flown the f-15 ex yet i have so i'm uh I don't think we, we let off of that. So I'm actually a backseater. So I'm a F-15E backseater. And as you know, the F-15EX uh, is a C-model replacement, but it's uh, it's got two seats. It's got two missionized cockpits with a few differences uh, than the E. But we have, uh, we have there's only two in the world. Uh, they're both here at Eglin Air Force Base where I'm stationed. And uh, there's about, it's probably 10. I think there's about 10 F-15EX qualified WISOs. Okay. Uh, that would go fly. So I actually flew, uh, I flew an E model at night in the weather, uh, doing, um, uh, tactical intercepts on Monday night. And then I turned to a F-15 EX, um, OCA sweep sortie on Wednesday. And then I flew a developmental test F-15 EX radar, uh, run, um, yesterday against, uh, okay. some, some pretty good jamming. So it's, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a, it's an awesome aircraft. It does some really cool things. Um, it'll be a really good C model replacement very, very, very soon. But the, uh, where the difference between the two is where the C model is absolutely topped out in capability. The EX is, you know, just cracking the door of what it can actually do. And so see, you know, as a surrogate for a C model, like, yeah, it could, it can do that now. Um, yeah, but that's not the future of that aircraft. What, what is the future of the aircraft? Well, It'll, it'll, uh, it'll be able, it, it can, uh, it will and can carry, uh, you know, outsized things. So, yeah. uh, I think munitions, other kinds of, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, drones that it's carrying, so it can, you know, something like that, uh, seven to 8,000 pound weapons. So hypersonics and things yeah. like that. So those are, those are things that, you know, an airplane with that big and that was designed that aerodynamically stable, you can do. Um, you, to an extent, you know, that's kind of the limitation for fifth gen and a little bit for the F-16 as well. It was designed to be aerodynamically unstable and it's small and it, it's great. It has some great attributes, but there's some things that just physically cannot do. Like I can't put a 10,000 pound weapon on an F-16 wing right. and hope that, it, you know, it doesn't flip over. Uh, so, you know, size, the size, weight and power uh, that it has as well, because it's so big. It has a lot of room for a lot of avionics and a lot of high powered systems. And so like, whereas, uh, you know, your, your fifth gen guys, uh, are very selective in their, their spectrum management, uh, because they need to hide and that's yep. not just, you know, in the radar spectrum, but you know, emissions wise, yeah, no, the F 15 EX isn't hiding from anything. And so, you know, if it was spinal tap, you could dial it up to 11 <laughs> and you know, you can put out some, some pretty good uh noise and power in the environment and ultimately yeah we've flown it, right now the ex is pretty much synonymous with a, an updated e-model so it's got the same radar and all the subsystems are all the same different cockpit layout but yeah you can take a, a an f-15e and pair it with an f-35 and the f-35 actually becomes more survivable and capable so individually the f-35 would could die in the same scenario right. or the f-15e or ex could die but when you put the complementing attributes of both systems together, it actually creates a win-win scenario. And that's kind of the teaming part of it. And it's, it's so 
interesting that, you know, it, it's the Air Force culture that goes back probably 15 years, back longer than that, about fifth gen technologies, about how that's the only way to go. You know, and a lot of that was based off of scar tissue, scar tissue from the F-22 program, scar tissue from the B-2 program. You know, if we just, we just keep saying it, like it'll matter. And right. I think people are realizing now that you, there are scenarios that we absolutely need an F-35, an F-22 type platform. There's absolutely scenarios that we need something way better than that. And so when you get to the next generation stuff and we, we have a very good idea of what the scenarios are where we need that. Yep. And then there's scenarios where, you know, we can do something with the F-35 or F-22 or fifth gen in general by complementing it with, with something else. And so you remember when you're in the military and you had the, the hearing test, you sit in the booth and it's like quiet and you're, you know, pushing the button yeah. and, uh, and it gets quieter and quieter and quieter. And then your, your ears start tuning in to, and you start predicting and you, you're, you're right there. Like, I know it's going to make a noise. If all we had was with things that flew that had the exact same signature, you'd basically be in that hearing booth looking for that very, very, everyone's heated on trying to cue into that faint sound. Now, if you put that faint sound in a rock concert, 0% chance you're going to see it or yeah. hear it. And so that's kind of the, the different signature aspects and how they're complementing. Uh, yeah, you flew the Viper. So you know what's better than a, than a GE 129 engine? What's that? Two, Two of them. So we were flying last week and uh, yeah, pretty, pretty right after takeoff, you know, getting our scenario, we're in a, we're in a F-15 EX with CFTs, uh, targeting pod, laner pod, because of the uh, Seek Eagle weight and balance right now. And we have our normal like uh, CADMs and our uh, you know, P5 pod. Yeah. And, you know, we're in the 40s super cruising. That's awesome. Man. It's just like, yeah. So it, it's, it's a thing. It's, uh, it's, got, it's got power, it's got, it's got payload, and it's got some range. And so that's, that's, uh, those are good attributes to have to complement the force. Yeah, that's awesome. I, you know, a little bit of the fighter integration before I did demo and, you know, the F-35 gets a lot of flack, you know, to this day and it probably will forever. And then doing air shows, you're always talking to people and they're always asking about the F-35 and dogging it. And my one like limited experience was doing a WESIP down there and we would do LFEs in the afternoon, large force exercise for those listening who don't know, but where we might take normally four Vipers to guard a 40 nautical mile wild lane. We would do one F-35 and two of us. Obviously, we are much more lethal, basically, because we're all playing together and we're all talking. There's strengths and weaknesses that we each have. We were missile trucks, you know, clean the rails and, and go home, whereas the F-35 couldn't do that, right? But we could share and do different things. And that's like a very rudimentary explanation of it. But again, it's all about playing as a team and playing off each other's strengths and weaknesses. I love the analogy of the rock concert because, I mean, that's, that's spot on. What, what is the plan currently for the EX, like as far as procurement and how it's going to integrate into the overall plan, if we're talking about, you know, near peer adversaries, which I think that's the new hotness. Yeah. So that's a, that's a really great question. So I'm not the spokesman for the Air Force, so I can't tell you officially, uh, what it is. Um, I, I have my own opinions. Uh, it was, it was, uh, an OSD assessment that the Air Force needed a fourth generation, a freshened up fourth generation fleet. So OSD made that decision. Um, what you can agree with it or not, but at the end of the day, um, there is a rapid fielding requirements document that says that the EX is a C model replacement unit 
It has non-interference air-to-ground uh, weapons integration testing that we're doing with it uh, here. We haven't done any of that yet. Um, we're focused on doing the software regression and uh, pilot vehicle interface, PVI, for the new screens. And so um, it's, it, it's, it's pretty far along as far as the C-model replacement. There's only two in the world, so it doesn't really do any good. <laughs> and the two, and I don't think most people realize that, yeah, we, we, we got these aircraft, but we, they're not real 100% true F-15 EXs. They are, uh, they cut the production line from the Qatari buy and they took two jets from the Qatari production line and then put all of the U S stuff in it. And so when okay. you look at EX one and EX two, um, some of the, uh, there's bumps and things around the airplane that are for EW systems that, that are for the foreign EW system. So we have actually a domestic EW system, EPAWS, and then we have the foreign, um, um, bumps on the airplane, if you will, for, uh, the, whatever the Qatari version is, the dues, I think it is, but, but gotcha. it's not installed. So it looks weird. It's wired a little different and it's, it's wired for tests. So it's, you know, it's an orange wired jet. Uh, when we get the, the next ones, so we'll, ha we'll have the next six are also orange wired and they have some, um, fiber backbone open missions architecture that's, that's capable. Uh, we haven't built a plan for that yet. So that's, uh, we're waiting on someone to figure that out. Uh, but when you when you look at what are you going to do with the airplanes when they start showing up, I think you, you there's a problem, uh, and the problem is like in the narrative. And so, you know, if the everyone wants the new hotness. Everyone wants this this jet. That's great. If you want it to be a C model replacement, go send it to the C model FTU. Have them build a conversion syllabus because it flies differently. Um, and if you're a C model guy, and we were out uh, the other day, if you if you're a C model guy and an E model guy, and you're flying, you know, the two EXs against each other in BFM. Uh, there are some handling attributes and flight control inputs that uh, are way different and will put you in a square corner very quickly. <laughs> and so, you know, you, you have to build a conversion for that. And then ultimately it was a rapid replacement. So we want to get that capability in the field. And I, here's where the sticking point is, is that, yeah, I could, you can get the, the EX to the field. If there were more to buy right now, if there were more, we're buying them, but there were more being delivered. Yeah. They have to build them obviously. And so it takes a couple of years but we can get that to the fleet, but ultimately you just get a, a C model equivalent. If you keep them in test and we're able to develop these other things and other capabilities. Um, th so that's kind of the dichotomy. Do we, do we speed up and, and accelerate them to the fleet to recap the C model? Uh, and you know, it's not a one for one replacement. So we know like F 35 squadrons are going to be stood up to replace F 15 C sundown. Uh, so it's not a one to one replacement. And so when you look at the EX and, and future growth, you know, there's a reason why there's a, se there's a second cockpit uh, that was, it, there's a future growth uh, potential. And I think everyone sees it's kind of like UPT. I don't really yeah. know what right looks like, but there's definitely something here, whether it's man-on-man -man teaming, uh, being like a quarterback or, um, you know, battlefield EW coordinator. So you're complementing EW packages from across entire strike packages, not just individual pilots pushing a button. So there, right. there's some really interesting things that you can start getting into when you, when you get to that, that second cockpit, but that kind of, uh, transcends the, the normal, um, F-15C historic mission. Uh, and then when you look at where they're going to be, so whether it's active guard, reserve, homeland defense, if it's going to be, um, have a protection. And so there's, there's, there's tons of missions that do not require, uh, the signature of a fifth gen platform. But all the missions that we do today require the fifth gen sensors of, a, of the platform. 
And so when you look at all the new stuff we're buying, you think it's a fourth gen aircraft. Like, no, it's a, it's a fifth gen, uh, everything wrapped in a fourth gen, you know, body. And so yeah, I don't need, that makes sense. yeah, I don't need stealth to intercept the Russian bomber, uh, at, <laughs> off the coast of Alaska. Like it's a bomber, uh, number yeah. one, I can see him for hundreds of miles away. Like it's not surprising, <laughs> but you know, people don't normally think about, you know, the threat that way. It's not necessarily, a, it's a threat to your target or what to your defending, but maybe not a threat to you. Right. And, and that narrative gets very, uh, muddied very quickly. And you seem to be able to see it. I think the F-35, then bringing that online, there's obviously, there's a lot to talk about there, but it seems like the methodology of bringing in people from different platforms worked out. Obviously, there's some things that could be be done better, but bringing in Raptor, A-10, F-16, F-15E, F-15C guys and gals, they're to, all coming from different communities, different mission sets to then figure out how to best employ this new plane and not just, oh, it's a, we're just doing air to air. And yeah, it's like, there's a whole mission set that go, there's multiple mission sets that go along with it and people from different backgrounds and expertise that can help figure out how to best utilize it to do mission X, Y, or Z. So maybe that, I mean, hopefully that will happen with the EX based upon what it's capable of versus just a one-for-one -one replacement. That's a, that's a really great point. So what I didn't highlight is that the, you know, I said there's F-15 EX Wizzos that are qualified. And so we're doing air-to-air -air with them, but we're also doing some other things. Um, think air-to-ground, multi-roll type stuff. Because that's it's part of the the test on a non-interference basis, but when you look at the front seat, the, most of the people uh, that are flying the EX, uh, if you're if they were C model pilots, uh, with the exception I think one person, every C model pilot we sent them through an F-15E transition course to get them dual qualified. They let they flew the E for a while and then we did a local conversion training for EX because E and EX the the HOTAS, the displays, everything is the same. It's just the difference if it's through a you know 1970s monochrome display or a large touchscreen. And it has a few nuances, but gotcha. uh, going into that and, and all of the, the E, the C, and the EX all have a common um, software. And so uh, as the F-15C sundowns, we were trying to merge all the software into one development uh, to cut down on costs. But then at, there's some compromises that go along with that that we've ran into. Whether it's, what should the HUD look like? Or I want my hotel to do this. And yeah. so the C, the C model guy, I want it to do this. And the E model guy said, well, you can't because there's 10 other functions that does in these missions because it has, a, oh, well, I didn't realize that. And so it's really good to have this eclectic group of experience. Um, again, it's like all ranks from captain to lieutenant colonels, from uh, guard, active, reserve, C model, E model. And so it's a, it's a really good team. Uh, we've actually, uh, here we've merged our division. We used to have a, a strike division and a C-model division. Now we just have a twin tail division. Everyone works in the same thing all together. And so yeah. it's, it's, been really, it's been really fun that, to learn some of the, uh, the things from the, um, there's a lot of isms, you know, you pick up from the other communities, as you know, but it's right. really, it's been awesome just throwing it all together. And, uh, you know, it's been awesome. Uh, I've, yeah, I've really cool appreciated being part of the team. Yeah, that's exciting to be, yeah, kind of the cutting edge, something something new as it always is. But uh, with that being said, I do want to transition a little bit. I want to talk, I mean, we're, we're going to jump back a little bit. You have an interesting path into the jet. You started out as a Marine. What, yeah, what was the, uh, what'd you do in the Marine Corps? How did you get there? And then what was the transition? Why did you jump into the Air Force? Ooh, all right, let's go uh, jump in the Wayback Machine. So, 
I, uh, in my senior year of high school, I, uh, I worked a lot, worked a couple jobs at the same time and school was pretty easy for me. I didn't study a whole lot, but I got, you know, A's and B's and I just kind of felt, uh, I wasn't challenged. So I didn't really, uh, my parents really didn't push me too hard on college and really understand the process. Uh, that I do now and I have kids, I didn't understand, like, it was actually a big thing, a significant emotional event to prepare to, you know, apply to yeah. colleges and take all this testing. I had no idea. It's so all my friends around me are, you know, doing SATs and filling out college applications. I'm like, huh, is it, am I supposed to be doing that? I think I am. Right? <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I had a friend that was, uh, you know, interested in the military and he, and a couple of guys who were kind of interested in the military and they ended up, uh, joining as a, uh, the delayed entry program. And he's like, oh, you should do this. It's awesome. I'm like, yeah. I don't know. So long story short, uh, recruiter talked me into it. It's like, I want to, you know, I looked at kind of all the services very, very quickly. And it was very clear. Like, I want to do, what, what is the hardest one? Like, well, that one, that one's going to suck the most. I'm like, all right, I want to do that. Uh, <laughs> because I wanted to try something to kind of push myself. And so I enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1997. Um, I was stationed in, uh, first assignment was in New River, which is over by Camp Lejeune. Uh, I was a helicopter mechanic. So I worked on, uh, Hueys, Cobras, 46s and 53s. And then, uh, I was getting ready to spin up for a deployment with the Mew. And so I got qualified as a, an aerial observer, so a door gunner on the, okay. on the 46. And we were supposed to deploy, uh, September 19th, 2001. And so you look at the timing. Uh, so we deployed, it was a yeah. planned deployment, uh, not to where we had planned on going. Yeah. And so I ended up in Afghanistan, um, in the very beginning of enduring freedom when it was, uh, infinite justice. That's what it was called in the beginning before yeah. they renamed it. So uh, yeah, I was in Afghanistan in, uh, in 2001 and 2002 as a, uh, as a Marine on the ground, basically doing troop insertions from the South. And that was operation swift freedom. And so there's uh there's, you can go back into history and look at that. So general Mattis was a, uh, was this brand new one star at the time that we worked for. So it was, uh, it's interesting to see. I saw him, you know, in the, when he's a secretary of defense, I, I got a solemn, I had a meeting with him one day and I mentioned he's, oh yeah. As we sat and talked for a few minutes about it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I figured. So that was, were you, uh, it, were you yeah, at a bastion? Where was it? Or yeah, you uh, well, no, it was before that. So we were up in, uh, in Pakistan. Uh, and then we went up to, um, Rhino. So Fob Rhino, uh, okay. kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And then we were actually in Kandahar. So I've got pictures of me in 2001, like in front of the Kandahar air, airfield. Yeah. Uh, you know, signed with like probably green Humvees and stuff. You know, all we had back then, just, you know, put it in there. And so, uh, so flew missions out of there, uh, flying the 46, doing uh, assault raids and, and picking up bad guys and stuff like that. So I did that and I figured I was actually the end of my tour. So we were uh, married, had a, had a kid when I went on deployment, actually re-enlisted going through the Suez Canal on the way to Afghanistan in 2001. <laughs> and I re-enlisted with the, <laughs> with the uh, assignment guarantee to go to Hawaii. So oh, that sounds great. We'll yeah. go there. Let me get my, let me get my school things in order. Cause now I know that like, I don't want to I don't want to play GI Joe forever. Uh, I need to figure something out. So uh, I came back from Afghanistan, moved to Hawaii. Uh, I doubled up on school. I probably set a world record for uh, having the gained the college degree in the fastest amount of time possible. Uh, <laughs> In that time, I uh, said, well, you know, by the time I get done, I'll have about eight years in. And, you know, if I get to 20, I get a little pension. Like, this Air Force thing looks like it's uh, the opposite of what I'm doing now. Like, I, I'm kind of getting tired <laughs> of what I'm doing. Like, that's opposite. I get more money. It's, like, supposed to be, like, you know, the chair force. It'll be great. Yeah. Uh, 
And so I go talk to a recruiter. I'm like, yeah, I want to be a pilot. And is that, is that a thing? And at the time, I'm like, well, like if you, if you have a pilot license and all this, you have like a 7% chance. Cause we just had way too many. I'm like, oh, well, that sucks. And well, you can be this navigator if you want. Like it has like a 98% selection rate. I was like, oh, yeah. that sounds dumb. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and it's, it's like a staff sergeant recruiter. And he's like, well, there's a, there's a sub career field called the weapon systems officer. I go, oh, what's that? He goes, oh, they only have it on the B1 and the F15E. Uh, but I can't give that to you. You have to, you have to apply for it and like compete for it. I go, okay, I, I'll do that. I, I'll win. I know. And so I, <laughs> uh, I applied and it's, I had to long story. I had to apply to get an exemption from the Marine Corps to go apply to the Air Force on condition of acceptance. So I had to pick something that I was going to pretty sure I got picked up. Then I got deployed to Iraq uh, <laughs> while, while this process was going on. So uh, I deployed and I got, uh, I got recalled uh, on 53s as, an, uh, as a door gunner. And so I ended up uh, going to Japan, getting on a, a 31st view, sailing over to uh, the Middle East offloading into Kuwait, pushing up to Iraq. And we were based out of Al-Assad during Operation huh. Phantom Fury, so the Battle of Fallujah. So yeah. I'm, we're flying, uh, you know, troop lifts and uh, assault raids all over the city and all over, you know, northwestern Iraq. And I get an email saying, hey, you're, you, congratulations, you've been selected to go to the Air Force. I'm like, oh, awesome. Oh, you know, I'll, I'll take care of this when I get home in a few months. Like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, you have 30 days to report to MEPS for your, your physical. Otherwise, like, you lose your spot. Oh, crap. So, uh, so that's, uh, I probably write a book about that, but long story short, I ended up, uh, uh, E and E my way across the world home, uh, from Iraq to Kuwait. I caught a flight from Kuwait to, um, the, uh, um, Heathrow and then Heathrow to Atlanta, Atlanta to LA, LA to Honolulu back home. And, uh, and by the time I was gone for uh, probably five or six months, my entire chain of command had retired. And oh. so now everyone's like, who, who are you? What are you doing here? I'm like, oh, I, I'm, I'm coming back from deployment to, uh, to check out and go in the Air Force. Like, no, you're not. Like, <laughs> so it, it, was, uh, it, was, it was not easy, but I finally like, like, I'm not making this up. Here's the paperwork. Like, wow, you, you forged the paperwork. No, no, no. So it's uh, so a long story short. I ended up getting out and uh, I ended up checking into the Air Force uh, officer training school one day late because... You can't, I could not get on the bus to go to the Air Force um, uh, processing because I had one day left in the Marine Corps. So I had to wait till midnight to be processed out of the Marine Corps to then the next day be processed into the Air Force. So I showed up to OTS one day late. And of course, it's like, oh, who's this guy? You think you're special? Like, oh, Jesus, you have no idea what I just went through to get here. <laughs> and, it, and the funny part about OTS was that it's, uh, they have a list of like who are the prior enlisteds. But again, uh, it's funny how systems work. The, they, they only look at prior Air Force. Right. And so I, had, I went the first probably two or three weeks in OTS, just not telling anyone. That's, yeah, that's like why. This, like I've been through Marine Corps boot camp, like Air Force officer school is going to be fun. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was a good time. And uh, so in that, they're like, hey, uh, you know, I was so dumb. I didn't know anything. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit better, but I'm still dumb and don't know anything. But at the time, you know, I'm in, I'm in, you know, eight years now in the military, I'm in the air force, uh, officer training school to be a navigator. And I'm, I go to the, you know, the DFAC or the, you know, the lunch hall, they have all these posters and stuff of all these aircraft. 
you know, fighters, bombers, and all. I couldn't tell you the difference between an F-15, an F-18, an F-16. I couldn't tell you the difference. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just happy to be here. I'll figure it out. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I applied to this thing, got picked up. I went through um, uh, nav training in Pensacola, which was joint at the times, yeah. which was awesome. Terrible. So it was like half Terrible. Navy, half Air Force in the Marines. Yeah. And Rough. then uh, ended up going, uh, tracking the Strike Eagle, and then... Uh, and so here I am, yeah, a couple ops assignments, weapon school, tied out the FTU, a couple thousand hours. And then, uh, yeah, so I flew, flew that for a while. And then I do have, uh, I think you pointed it out. I do have one sortie in an F-18. Counts. <laughs> it what counts. It counts. <laughs> so it, uh, again, cra- crazy stories. So I ended up uh, flying uh, in a, F- a F-A-18F off the USS Ronald Reagan on a combat mission as one Bravo, uh, as a Lieutenant. How, how, how did that happen? Other than the fact that I know like probably blanket statements, the Navy and just anything goes. <laughs> yeah. We were, uh, our L and O's and we we're all deployed from my, uh, one of my first deployments as, as in the air force, so my third deployment to date, third combat deployment, first air force deployment. And, uh, the L and O's that are squadrons and, and the boat sat next, sat next to each other at the chaos and like, Hey, wouldn't it be great if we like swap backseaters? Like, yeah, let's do that. So they worked it all out. And so we sent two lieutenants from Bagram, you know, That's all the way awesome. down to Bahrain to, to then yeah. get, catch a, a cod flight to the Reagan. And then they were going to send two Navy Wizzos kind of reverse path up to Bagram. And apparently what had happened is while we were en route, the, the Navy changed their mind and decided not to send their guys to, to us. Because I said, well, if the ship leaves, we can't get them back. And like that, we don't accept that risk. But the Air Force is like, well, if the ship leaves and we can't get our guys back, we do accept that risk. They're just lieutenants. We don't care. Yeah, yeah. It's actually better. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up uh, going down. Uh, the so two of us went down there, me and a buddy of mine. And uh, they had they had three sorties. And there was two of us. And I'm like, pick, pick which ones you want. And so uh, my, bu- my buddy got to do a, uh, a day and a night kind of local uh, training sorties. Uh, and then I got to do the, uh, like 6.5 or 7.0 beach sortie up to, uh, to OEF. And, That's uh, awesome. I got so close. I had troops in contact that nine line and everything. I think oh, this would be fantastic. Get the guided, yeah. a laser guided bomb uh, flying an F-18 as a lieutenant in the air force. <laughs> that would been awesome. That's cool. <laughs> it's surprising that you know, they like even let that happen. You know, nowadays I feel like, nah. The easy answer is always no, you know, so it's That's cool right. when, so, when something like that actually like, Hey, you know what? Common sense wise, like, yeah, we could probably do this to be a good experience. And, you know, give you some know, people some fortunate, more choices. You know, I told you all that stuff and there's a ton more, but I've been really fortunate to, to have a lot of people, you know, do just that with me. Like, yeah, why, like I'll take a chance. I'll take a chance on this. You know, again, what's the worst thing that could happen. Right. And so I, I try to adopt that same mentality. I've been very, very fortunate over my, uh, my 24 years and counting of service yeah. so far and the opportunities I've had, uh, you know, it's, I've been, been to a lot of places and I have a lot of different, um, experiences have been stretched in a lot of different ways. And when people are interested in doing the same thing, I see a little bit of myself in them and I yeah. absolutely want them to, to experience what I've been through. And, and I don't want to be that roadblock for them. Yeah. It's awesome. I mean, that's what the air force needs is guys like that to be willing to take some chances, right? Because you're buying risk. Usually, obviously, you're, you're weighing it, but you're, ultimately, it's going to come with buying some kind of risk when you're stepping outside of the norm uh, to do that. But I think it's important because otherwise, it just stagnates. And then again, you're not putting tools in someone's tool bag, right? If, it, if you're not expanding the horizons and doing different things. So 
I know that that sounds like a really cool experience. I always wanted to, I, I always want to fly the Hornet probably just once. Uh, I never want to land on the boat. There's no point in my mind to land on the boat because you're just stuck there. That but was a, a cat shot. Cat yeah. shot would be cool. So I did the uh, I did the cat shot and the trap on the on the the cod and on the uh, the F model on the Super Hornet and the and the for people who don't know the 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 cod the the Greyhound you sit backwards so you get launched and recover facing backwards and then to do it in the Super Hornet you're obviously facing forward and uh, those were significant emotional events uh, <laughs> I was not prepared for how violent uh, I mean you see the videos you go oh that looks violent. Yeah. It's actually like experience it. Like that was a different level of, of violence. So much violence. <laughs> so much. You, you can speak to this because you did a DARPA fellowship. The Fighter Pilot podcast, uh, Jello had uh, 06 on there. I forget his name. This is a few months back. I was listening to it. And he, the DARPA uh, colonel, he asked, he's like, how many, you know, traps do you have? And Jello knew to the T the number of traps he had. It was like, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a thing of pride for the Navy yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. They have Centurion it, patches when they hit 100, yeah. Yeah, which, you know, I, I mean, I, I had a, a buddy on here who did a Hornet exchange, and he got 100 traps, you know, so he could say well over 100. He did 101 traps, so he could say well over 100 traps. You know how I know uh, that there's a Centurion patch, by the way? <laughs> How's the, that? Uh, the, the Navy fighter squadron on the boat that, that hosted us for like five or six days, they were awesome. And at the end of it... uh. I got a Centurion patch that was like that. All the two extra zeros were like stitched over, and so it had a one with a big blob next to it. <laughs> That's awesome! Oh, oh. Great, great guys! Oh, great guy and girls. There's guys and girls. Great, great people. What well, I, I actually in New Orleans, I took a cable for a brake failure, and yeah, you know, a bunch of Navy guys were there, and I took the departure end cable. Like by the time I realized I had a brake failure, put the hook down, take the departure end cable. And caught so much flack, you know, because you're like, oh, you didn't take the approach in cable. Like, no, that's putting a, a hook down in a, in a you know, Air Force aircraft is a significant emotional event. I'm not excited about this. Yeah, I've uh, I've taken I've taken a cable a few times. I uh, I made I made uh, I made headline news for taking a cable once back in. Uh, <laughs> uh, we could talk we could talk war stories all day long if you want to yeah, hear that where, story. Yeah, where yeah, where is that at? So we were in. Uh, we were in Iraq in 2014, uh, in northern Iraq, uh, doing good work. And at the time, um, everything that was going on in Iraq was attributed to the Navy, where like 90% of everything actually going on was Air Force. But because of yep. basing sensitivities, we just say it's the Navy. But most things when you read in the press, it says the Navy. It may or may not be the Navy. So we were up in uh, northern Iraq, and uh, our, uh, our wingman's like, hey, can you check, check fuel? It looks like you have a fuel leak. Like, that's weird. So we go look at our uh, our fuel state. I'm like, no, huh? no, everything looks fine. We got no cautions, no nothing. And uh, like, it clear to rejoin. So they give us a battle damage check. Like, yeah, you're definitely streaming. You're definitely streaming a lot of stuff out of your uh, out of the right side of your jet. And I'm like, well, that's weird. We don't see any. And about at that point, all of our indications started going off. We had a <laughs> hydraulic leak, and it was like the worst type of hydraulic leak that we have in our aircraft, which is like total pending hydraulic failure. Uh, so it's the, the, the system that's the backup system yeah. basically blew a, uh, blew a valve. And so it was like the backup reservoir. So all of the stuff, all the primary stuff is going into the backup system, which is just emptying out. And, uh, nice. you can see our hydraulic pressures like slowly falling and like, okay, well, we only have so much time. So, uh, we were supposed to, uh, Kuwait was our go-to place to divert. Uh, and we know that, uh, because we just flew over it like 45 minutes to an hour before there was a massive sandstorm that had rolled in. 
So all the ops out of Kuwait were canceled, runways closed. Like there's no way you're going to fly through a sandstorm to land there. Yeah. And so we're looking at like, well, Baghdad's right there. Like, well, based on the, what we know is going on right now, like that, I don't want to go there either. There's no U.S. presence yet, nothing. Yeah. And so uh, we're like, well, we're in northern Iraq. I guess we're going to go into Turkey. And so we, uh, we, we got on guard and uh, we ended up going to Turkey. We didn't even have... I don't, we didn't even have an approach plate. We had nothing because it wasn't even a divert. It wasn't a no plan, but it was the nearest place to land. So we, uh, we crossed the Turkey. Everyone's yelling at us in a different language uh, on guard. And we're trying to like, we're, you know, emergency, this and that. And we end up going to Batman and you know, we don't have hydraulics. We have no brakes. So we have to take a cable and we're in a fully loaded uh, strike Eagle. And so I think we had, uh, you know, three, probably three, JDAMs, four laser guided bombs, four STVs, live missiles, and you know, all the weight for our fuel. Right. And we don't want to dump the gas because we're in no man's land. So like I guess we'll just land a little heavy, plus all the weight from the weapons. Yeah. So we uh we actually used a targeting pod to figure out which side of the runway the cable was strung and then and then set up a uh, approach to to take the cable. Uh long story short, we took the cable, ripped the cable out of the ground, broke the cable in half, it snapped Jeez. back, hit the aircraft, hit the right engine. And we had to pull our emergency brakes, which then popped the tires. When long story short, it's a really great picture. We're about halfway down this runway, and it's just metal, like just two metal streaks that are like thousands of feet long oh. from the brake stack, just digging into the runway. And uh, so we shut. We were, we were sitting there, we're like, oh my god, we made it. We we survived. It's a dual use uh, runway, so there's actually like a commercial terminal there, and there's a military. So the Turkish military comes out and they uh, surround our aircraft and we're like, uh, you know, we have SATCOM. So we're trying to talk to our ops desk, which is like 1200 miles away. Yeah. And the way that our jet came to rest, the antenna wasn't pointing very well. So we were getting like just a few clips. Like, I don't know anyone in Turkey. I don't have a divert checklist. I don't have a phone number to call. I don't have anything. And so yeah. we, uh, it was a very interesting uh, journey to get back, uh, get the aircraft out of there. But that's uh, when it when it shut the runway down. It made the local news because you could see an F-15 on the runway with a bunch of weapons, right? And uh, and then that got picked up in the Middle East. So you look, there's F-15s in uh, in in Iraq. Well, yep, that was that was us. That was <laughs> the uh, I, we're probably there about the same time. I got there in October of fourteen and left in spring of fifteen. Um, yeah, I was uh, I, I was there for. Uh, yeah, night one in Syria, September twenty third. I know that because I was the strike package commander. Yeah, uh, and uh, and yeah, so we were doing that, and we probably left in October. So um, yeah, you guys ripped out the uh, the uh, other squadron in Jordan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we ripped out the Masala guys. Um, and then I want to say maybe the fourth is who probably ripped you guys out. Um, yeah, yeah, hey. that's right. Yep, yep. Uh, so that's yeah. I we actually had. Uh, one which had tally shoes on here and is our squadron weapons officer. This is later on the plane, but you know, it's still like diverting into Turkey was a significant emotional event for the majority. I mean, I would say all of our deployment and there was lots of back and forth as far as what the ROEs were. If you're going to jettison everything, if you get across the border and vice versa, but they actually had is towards the end. We actually had several jets that had fuel issues and there were different ones. And on this particular sortie, uh, poker is a weapons officer. He has uh, a fault indication, and then his gauges go to zero. And then as Tally's checking her jet, she also had, I mean, it's just like perfect storm. Both of them have fuel issues, so they divert into to Saudi, into this one field. Um, 
that we only had a, like a Jeppesen approach plate for, and it was a CTAF controlled, like click, you know, seven times to light up the runway. They diverted into there, you know, kind of similar story. Talking on SATCOM, trying to figure out, but it's amazing to see how fast things can happen while the jets are still running. Yeah, you know, they see a, you know, bongo truck coming, you know, across the desert. It's like, this is going to go one of two ways. And uh, they, one of them shut, poker shuts down and it's an Apache pilot and a Saudi Apache pilot is like, Hey, I'm Johnny Cash, you know, and like his <laughs> accent. And that, I mean, they got the jets turned and out of there pretty quick. And obviously it was a remote part of Saudi. So there wasn't a lot of news and press for it, but there's motivation that runs all the way up the chain and, you know, over to the state department and back down. So it's kind of crazy to see that stuff. And obviously stuff like that's still going on today. You know, you just don't hear about it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, we, we got, in our situation, it was really interesting because when we crossed the border into Turkey, we actually left CENTCOM. So we flew into yeah. UCOM. And so it made this huge, like, three and four-star generals are arguing about things because now we're in a different MAGCOM and who owns us? Like, oh, are you kidding me? Or a different COCOM? Oh. Yeah, terrible. I See, there's bureaucracy I'll... everywhere. Yeah, no matter where you are, right? Like, like what's the, what do we do? What's the mission here? Like, let's just let's line up and get the mission done. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> well, Paco, before we uh, kind of transition out, again, I want to mention the Merge newsletter. You can go over to the merge.co, sign up for that. If you're interested in defense-type news coming from fighter pilots, you know, it's kind of no BS. It's no BS. It's objective. I really enjoy it. I appreciate you putting the time in to do that. I know, you know, it's not, it's not an easy thing in a lot of time. So if you're interested in kind of really getting what's going on, not the fluff pieces, the Merge newsletter, again, the merge.co. Is there anything else you kind of like to highlight about that? So I have one more question for you, but I'll give you a chance to talk about the merge if you want. Yeah, I'd, I'd say, uh, you know, every day you have, a, you have a choice to make. You can either be smarter or dumber. And, <laughs> you know, if you do nothing, you will get dumber because, you know, time passes by. So make the right choice. <laughs> <laughs> Simple to the point. The last question I got for you is I always ask my guests, you know, if you found 16, 17-year-old Paco walking on the street, is there any advice you'd give him, tips, tricks, or tell him to do something different? Hmm don't suck and just go try it. Yeah. So I think we have a lot of, I see a lot of people who, who don't take shots, uh, because they're worried about, they might fail. And so I've, uh, I never had that problem. And, uh, I wish I would have embraced that a little bit earlier in my career. So I try to do what matters, um, most, and then let the chips fall where they fall. Awesome. Well, Pog, I appreciate you joining me on the podcast. It'd be fun to have you back on here, talk about some more stuff, because, again, you have a lot of great insights. So thanks for taking the time. Anytime. Thanks. Appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Paco. Again, if you're looking for defense and national security-related news, check out themerge.co. Remember, his There I Was stories living up on patreon.com backslash the Afterburn podcast. And you can help the podcast out by just swinging over to iTunes and dropping a rating review. Thanks for listening in, and until next time, don't bring a week.